0: Heavenly Father, you are great and you are worthy to be praised. You're worthy to be honored and adored and loved, Father. And so in the next few minutes, we're going to be talking about what you've called us into as a family, as, a, as the family of God. And, and I'm praying right now for you to um, communicate to me and my heart and to my friends here all that it entails to be part of your family, that we would feel the joyful weight of all the things that you've called us into, all the gifts and blessings you've provided us, Father. Um, It's so easy for us to get distracted by everything else in our lives, and I pray right now that you'd remove distractions and that you would commend to our hearts the great realities that are in this book, this, this book, that we love and cherish because you wrote it for us. And so I ask for your spirit to come here, Father, for you to minister to us in this place and for your name to be exalted and glorified in everything that we say, think, or do. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn to Colossians 3. We'll start with verse 15 today. And if you were with us last week, you know that we were, in a, we're in a new series. The series is called Chosen Ones, and it is rooted in how Paul addresses the church at Colossae in verse 12. He calls the Colossian Christians who are in Christ, he calls them chosen ones, holy and beloved. And that's how Paul addresses us, anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. That's how he addresses us. And the reason he does that is when he communicates these truths to us, he wants us to have a strong foundation under our feet. He wants us to have the strongest of all foundations, namely the eternality of God's love for us in Christ. And so as we pursue these things the stuff that I'm about to read, the things that we talked about last week, and really anything that that comes about in this series, it's important, it's critical for us to recognize that that's the foundation we stand on, that God in eternity past loved us. He set his compassion on us before we were born. And Paul wants us to know also that our desires and inclinations to be obedient to this or to move into the direction that he's calling us to, didn't come from our own hearts. They didn't originate out of nothing in our own hearts, that they originated from the heart of God. They came from his heart. So all the good that we ever do in this life comes from his love and his good that he's done to us, which he fixed on us before, like we talked about last week, the foundation of the world. And today we're going to shift from looking at the individual people of God, which is what we talked about last week, to looking at the family of God. What is God's family look like? What are the earmarks of the church, the people who have been chosen by God? So let's read verses 15 through 17 and see how Paul handles this, how Paul engages this topic. All right, verse 15 says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Teaching and admonishing one another in all all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. It's a lot of text there are three major components in this passage that I want to focus on today, one for each verse. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's one. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the second one. And then he says, number three, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we have these three concepts, these three concepts, paradigms that the Christian family, the family of God, lives out. There's the paradigm of the peace of Christ, there's the word of Christ, and then there's the name of Christ, the name of the Lord Jesus. And I want to look at each of these, and I want to ask some questions. Some of these questions are going to be tough. Tough questions about where we are in our pursuit of Christ, where we are in how we love God and honor God, and uh, what exactly is Paul after in these passages? Is it as easy as just reading it? Is there stuff that we should, we should see in the text, in his meaning? And how do we pursue these things in our lives? I don't think anyone at the end of the day is going to say, I disagree with what Paul said. We're going to have the question, how do we pursue these things? So let's start with the peace of Christ and work our way down. Verse 15 says this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So when I read a verse like this, the first question I want to ask is, what does the author mean, who's been inspired by God, what does the author mean by the, by the phrase, peace of Christ? What kind of peace is Paul talking about here? Because there's different kinds of peace. Is this the kind of peace that Jesus talked about in John 14 when he says to his disciples, my peace I give to you. Not the peace of the world, my peace I give to you a peace that's going to secure them and anchor them to him despite everything that's going to happen to him when he goes to the cross. Is that this kind of peace? And I don't, I don't believe it is, and let me show you why. First, in this passage, Paul does not mention any threat of persecution. He doesn't, mean, he doesn't mention any kind of anxiety that is coming from the outside towards the church or even rising inside the church at all. Instead, he mentions that they were called to this peace in one body. And the one body, of course, here is the the family of God, the church. And it would seem as though Paul is stressing in this piece unity and being of one body, being part of the family of God, especially the local family that he's speaking to, which is the Colossian church. Secondly, I see here that um, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And if this peace was directed towards an outside threat or to something that was coming upon the Colossian Christians, he would likely tell them to pray for God to supply this peace because in other passages, like in Philippians, we see that exact same thing. But instead he tells them, let it rule, let it govern in your hearts, which at least communicates to us that this is a peace that they already know to some degree, that they've experienced, but possibly it is getting dethroned in their hearts. It is getting pushed from its place of ruling because of competing desires. So the piece that Paul is talking about here, because of those two uh, elements or evidences and others that are in the passage, is unity within the body of Christ. And I think for us, God has really blessed us at Risen Hope uh, in this season with a kind of smallness that actually helps us be united and helps us have peace without even trying for it. Uh, there's, a, there's an ease to the relationships we've got here and a closeness here that, I mean, I hope you f- feel, I hope you felt yesterday at the pool party if you were able to make it, um, that we have that a lot of churches struggle to have because of other factors. And what I want to ask though is this, whether inside this church body or outside this church body, how are we doing about feeling united with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with feeling peace towards them, other believers? Maybe they go to a different church. Maybe they're part of a different denomination, or they believe theological things slightly different than us. Um, And maybe we feel like maybe they're not doing it correctly or that they're not thinking about these things in Scripture rightly, but... um, we know that they love Christ. We know that they trust him with their lives. And so the question I have here is, is are our feelings for them governed in our hearts by peace primarily? Is it, are we ruled by a peace that they're brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're going to be with them forever when we go to see Christ? Paul obviously knows that there's a time to fight for right doctrine, for good doctrine. There's always a time to fight for that. But a question we we often need to ask, especially if we're predisposed to fighting for for good doctrine, um, is do we fight for the doctrine of peace and the doctrine of unity with the same level of intensity and passion and fervor that we fight for all the other good and right doctrines? Or do we, as believers, see unity and peace in the body of Christ as something that's kind of expendable? It's good if we get it. It's a nice-to-have but it's really not something we need. And Paul's saying here, no, no, you need peace. And if you read through his corpus of writings and really all of the new Testament, you see this pervasive call for peace in the body of Christ. You need this peace. In fact, John 17, and we talked about this before, um, Jesus says to his disciples, our love for each other. Yeah. He's actually praying to his father and telling his father, I need you to unite my brothers and sisters. Um, And he's saying that one of the ways that the world sees Christ in the church is through this unparalleled unity that we have, this peace that we have that is incomprehensible to everyone outside of it. So there's a way in which us refusing to embrace this peace actually obscures the picture and the image of Christ Jesus for the world around us. They don't see something they desperately need to see. And Paul's saying, we can't afford to let that happen. We cannot afford to let that happen. So Paul's first command in this series of commands is let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, that that the peace of Jesus Christ would govern our thoughts and our words and our actions to everybody in the household of God. That's number one. The second thing he talks about here in this passage is the word of Christ. Listen to Paul in verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to-, to God. So what does Paul mean by this phrase, word of Christ? What is he referring to here? Is he just talking about the words that Jesus actually said, like the actual Aramaic words that he said in this book? Or is he talking about something different? I think it's clear from the testament of, testimony of Scripture that he means Everything that is in this book was spoken by Jesus. Everything in this book is considered the word of Christ, both the Old and New Testaments. And we know this because of the way that Jesus refers to all Scripture as it relates to him. Whether it's Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation 22-21, this is all the word of Christ. It's all pointing to Jesus. In John 5, Jesus has this encounter um, with Jewish leadership, and he tells them, these are, these are Pharisees, these are people who are so steeped in their Old Testament scriptures that you squeeze them and it comes out of them. They know this by heart. And he tells them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's talking about the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament. And then he says to the same people, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Why is that, Jesus? For he wrote of me. But you do not believe his writings, so how will you believe my words? Jesus is saying that every passage in the Old Testament is pointing to him. It either prepares the way for the Messiah by indirectly showing our need for him, our need for a Savior like Christ, or it directly, prophetically foreshadows who he really is and what he'll accomplish on the cross. If you remember the scene after the resurrection, Jesus is walking, it's in the book of Luke, on the way to Emmaus, a town, after he's died and risen, And he comes upon his own disciples, two of them, and they don't recognize him. They can't see who it is. And he's talking with them, and their response is this refusal to believe that anything good could have come from the cross. They don't believe that his words, that he his promise, really, that he would rise from the dead. And he tells them this. He says to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Luke doesn't leave any doubt about it. When we look at the Old Testament, which was really the, the early church's Bible, outside of the letters from the apostles, it was what they, what they looked at constantly, like, like we look at this book, all scriptures are concerning Jesus Christ. All of the Bible on either side of the cross is a story about Jesus. And Paul is telling us, take those words, the word of Christ, and all of scripture, and let it dwell in you richly. He's not talking about reading the Bible whenever you get a chance. He's not talking about reading a few verses a day because you're on a Bible plan or you've got an obligation to do it. You really need to do it. It's the right thing to do. He's not talking about that here. He's saying that the word of Christ needs to steep into the depths of our souls. And I think it's difficult sometimes for us to do that because we've got schedules that are just insane, crazy schedules. And we've got a ton of responsibilities that are put on our, our back and we're like, I just, I want to find time for it, but I just can't. But we have to recognize that, and this is hard because we can create a dissonance with it, this book is filled with the words of God, the living God. It's filled with his thoughts, his purposes, his plans for us, and his passions for our future with him forever. And I think we oftentimes don't consider how profound that reality is, that the creator of the universe wrote a book and he desires for us to know him through it. There is nothing more important than scripture to read. And if we fail to see it, it's not because there's a defect in the book. It's not because there's a defect in the book. We're not seeing it. Psalm 1910 says this about the words of God. More to be desired are they than gold. Gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Gold and honey in David's time were the extreme of two different things, what you would taste and experience with your mouth with honey and what you could have in your possession. There isn't anything higher than those things. So he's literally groping for language in his own context to explain how glorious God's words and God's commands and admonitions to us are actually, how they really are. And the question I've got now with this one is, is this our experience with Scripture? Is this our experience with the Bible? Do we let the word of Christ penetrate the depths of our hearts and take root And do we let it dwell in us richly or do we find ourselves more preoccupied with other things, anything? Do we find ourselves uh, ignoring the fact that this is God's word? And Paul's saying here, if you're in God's family, you can't ignore that fact. You have to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We cannot act, even if we say otherwise, we cannot act that God hasn't spoken, that his word doesn't, his book doesn't contain his own words. We're called to be gripped by the realities that are in this, in this uh, book. And you can tell, generally speaking, you can tell when someone has been gripped by it because they do what Paul's describing in this passage. They want to talk about it. They're overflowing incessantly with the glories that they've seen in this book about Jesus and about his work in redemptive history. And they're gripped by it, which is why Paul follows this command with what happens when the word of Christ does dwell in us ritually. He says, we will be teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So this is the effect that the Bible has on people when it saturates them. And he, he's describing really here a spontaneous and joyful delight in the word of Christ. He's describing um, this communicating all the things that we've found in here that we treasure and love and want to express. When something good happens to you, there's a certain level that it passes and you just need to share it with people. And that's what he's describing here. He's like, I I can't hold it back. I want to tell you what I saw today, what God showed me. And and he's saying teaching isn't just a role in the church. It is that. There is a role in the church for teaching and for admonishing, but it isn't just that. It is really... If you're steeped in the scripture, it is the culture of the church. Everyone is communicating what they saw. And it's not, it's not condescending correction or nitpicking and splitting hairs over some minor thing that they see that's a disagreement on. Paul's describing encouragement, sharing what we've seen with the eyes of our hearts in this book and just desperately wanting people to join us in our joy. I saw this about Jesus. I want you to see this. I want you to embrace what I've embraced as this glorious truth about Christ. And what's awesome about this passage is he doesn't just stop with sharing facts about it, making statements about it. These people are singing with joy. Look at the text, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's more than teaching. And what's amazing here is that Paul's saying there's a kind of Bible reading, there's a kind of study that you can commit yourself to that doesn't leave you just with a desire to tell other people about it, which is huge, but that in seeing the glories of the Scriptures, there's, there's, there's a way in which it compels us to want to sing and praise Him and worship Him and delight in Him visibly. So think about the picture here. When brothers and sisters in Christ are so captivated by what they see in this book, what they experience when they read this book, and they're not reading it for facts, they're not reading it because they have to, they're reading it because they can't help but be attracted to the Christ that they see in here. And they respond to it in singing and in worship and in singing psalms and hymns Because what they see in this book is that Jesus Christ is exceedingly wonderful and exceedingly beautiful. And so if you just consider this context for a moment, what Paul's describing here, where where we see Christ and sing Christ to our family of God, it is as though God is pulling back the curtain on eternity and giving us a glimpse into what we were made to do. And I, I don't care if you can hold a note or not. We were all made to sing. That's what we were made to do. That is the highest thing that we can do. Sing about him. That's why we live. And we were made to praise him forever. And when we experience that, when we're so saturated in his word that this is what we want to do, this is our disposition, that's our response to what we see in scripture. And it is a preface to an eternity of worship. Which leads us to the third command that Paul has here, the name of Christ. Let's look at verse 17. Paul says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And So Paul here is taking us further and deeper and really broader, encompassing everything with this this command. He says, whatever we do, And I take that to mean everything. The word whatever, when he says whatever you do, and him following it up again by saying do everything, I take that to mean everything that we do, say, or think. Every word, every deed. And so how does Paul want us to handle those words and deeds? He says we do all of them in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And we might ask, well, what, what does that really mean? What is the name of the Lord Jesus? We hear it in the New Testament all the time. Do this in the name of the Lord Jesus or pray in the name of Jesus. What does it mean? Well, at the very least, it must mean that we are trusting in him and in the worth of his name. We are believing and trusting in him. That Jesus is Lord, and He can be trusted with my life. He can be trusted with my decisions. He can be trusted with my deeds and my words, which is a simple enough conclusion to arrive at if we've read the New Testament at all. But what is a little bit more opaque, yet I think is very implicit in this passage, is that it also means that in our faith in Christ, we are glorifying His name. We are exalting and lifting up His name. In our trusting of Him, we are proclaiming by our words, by our actions, by our predispositions, that he is trustworthy. He is worth trusting in. He is worth anchoring yourself onto. We're not doing it with cold hearts. This isn't a mechanical thing. We are doing it because we love him, and we are so deeply gripped by who he is and what he's done for us. And so everything in our life, every word, every deed, every thought, is all under the preoccupation we have with pursuing the glory of Jesus Christ. And so those are the three commands that we see in this passage. They're the three paradigms that the family of God is called to live out in this book of Colossians. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. And it's Paul's labor in this part of the letter, to press this into the Colossian believers. He's already engaged them about the glory of Jesus Christ at the beginning. He's dealt with this heresy that was cropping up in here, and now he's saying, I want you guys to be the family of God. This is what the family of God looks like. But if you've been paying attention to what we just covered, you'll notice that I've left out something important. Actually, quite a lot. Jacob, could you pull up Colossians three, fifteen, seventeen 17 slide? You'll notice that in verse 15, Paul says that after letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, we are to be thankful. Go ahead with the whole passage. There we go. We are to be thankful, he says. And in verse 16, after telling us to read our Bibles and to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, the kind of dwelling that that leads to worship, he says, again, be thankful thankful. He says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So this is more specific. It's not just a generic thankfulness. He said, with the peace of Christ, we should be thankful. With the word of Christ, we should be thankful to God. And if that was it, maybe we could write it off as a coincidence. Maybe we could say that this is, maybe there's a subtle connection Paul's after here that we'd have to guess at, but that's not it. Paul doesn't leave it there. Look at verse 17. He says, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, through Jesus. And so again, there's another command to be thankful. We have three dimensions of what it means to be in the family of God, followed each of them by three commands to be grateful, to be thankful. So what is the point, Paul? Why are you setting it up like this? Why are you connecting these three things this way? Why would God inspire Paul to put thankfulness at the end of these three attributes of the family of God? Here's the reason why. All of these, whether we are talking about the peace of Christ, whether we are talking about the word of Christ, or whether we are talking about living our lives for the glory of the name of Christ, all of these are gifts from God. They are gifts from God. The reason we do them, the reason we can do them, isn't actually because of something in us intrinsically. The reason we can do them, and God desires for us to know this fact, which is why these lines of thankfulness are in here, is that is that we would know it is because of him that we can do these things. It is because of him that we can have the peace of Christ. It is because of him that we can embrace the word of Christ for what it truly is. And it is because of him that we can do everything in our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. And he wants us to see how awesome that is and to be grateful for it and thankful for it and to know the source that it come from, to know his profound and abundant grace in providing us with that. And last week, we talked about being chosen for adoption before the world began, that God chose us for adoption to himself, not because of anything in us, but because he loved us. And so these gifts are from our Father. And since we are his family and we belong to him, he gives us these gifts freely. He loves us. They are ours because we are his. And because they're in his DNA and these are expressions of his character, they need to be in ours. And so this is exceedingly good news for me, if I'm honest with you, because uh, if you're anything like me, things like the peace of Christ do not come easy sometimes. Sometimes they don't come easy. Sometimes I would rather argue about something than be peaceful about it, if I'm honest with you. Sometimes I just want my way. Sometimes it's just selfishness. Sometimes I feel I'm right about something and I just want to prove it And I know what's best even if I have to give up having peace and we have division or whatever it might be. That's not how God's family is. That is not how God's family acts. Romans 15 says it this way. Paul prays that may the God of peace or the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together, he's talking about the family of God, together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that God has given to us, granted to us harmony with each other, which is the same thing as this peace and this unity, because the God in us is not a God, the God who dwells in us by his Spirit is not a God who is given towards strife and dissension and division. He is a God, as this text says, of endurance. He is a God of long-suffering and patience with us, and therefore we should be long-suffering and patient with everyone around us in the family of God. He is a God of encouragement, not a God of dissension and disagreement. He's a God of encouragement and grace and loving exhortation And for what purpose? What is God's ultimate purpose? What's the reason that he grants to them this harmony in answering Paul's prayer? It says that his family has this kind of peace and unity at its very heart so that our praises to God are one voice. One voice. He wants to hear, when we sing to him, he wants to hear one voice united voice, who loves him. That's what worship to God looks like when there's unity, when there's peace. This is the goal, that as we glory in God together as his children, deeply loving our Father, we rejoice with one voice. It's one voice. It is indistinct that there are many people saying it, because we're all of the same mind and the same spirit. That's the peace of Christ, as a gift? What about the word of Christ? Why would Paul say that we need to be thankful for the word of Christ? What does he mean by that? Is it because this is a reasonable thought? Is it because we have an infallible book that has stood the test of running centuries that we can trust and bank our lives on? Or is it because at this point in, in our lives we have more access to to the Bible than we've ever had before globally. And I would say, no, it's not those things. We should be thankful for those things. We should absolutely be thankful for those things. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. And this is the reason why. Everyone has access to those things, not just the family of God. And everyone who reads this book, not everyone will see what we will see in it. Not everyone will delight in it the way we will delight in it. For most people, reading the Bible does not lead to a delight in God or worship for Him. For most people, when they read the Bible, they do not sing for joy at what they see. And so, what is Paul telling us to be thankful for here? The reason is actually very simple. When we look at Scripture, when we see God in the Bible, and we see how absurdly gracious He has been to us, and how His love in the gospel of Jesus Christ is so profound. When we read it and we perceive what is being written in there, we are caught up in adoration for this great God and King. And we love him. And that's not normal. That is not normal. We can call him father after reading this book. We believe him and trust Him, And it causes us when we read this book to sing his praises. It fills us with a kind of invincible gladness and that isn't something everyone has when they read this book. In fact, most of the world is blind to this joy in this book. Most of this most of our world read the Bible and they see nothing but sentences, nouns, verbs and phrases that mean nothing to them. But that's not true about the children of God. That's not true about the family of God. We don't just see those things. We don't just see sentences. We see the meaning underneath them. And that meaning is so powerful that it fills us with gladness. This is a gift. This is a gift. Because when we're blind to see something, I mean really blind, spiritually blind, to see something like this means that our eyes were somehow opened. And 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that very thing says this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And if it stopped there, we would be in an ocean of hopelessness. But he doesn't. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ this is what we're thankful for this is the word of Christ that we're thankful for the recognition that in order for us to see him we needed to be healed from our blindness our spiritual blindness and he healed us he healed us if you can look at the words of scripture and read those words and enjoy god you've been healed God has radically healed you and he did this through the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He did this through the word of Christ. And I don't want this to be a theory for you. I don't want this to be theoretical, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about my my story. I don't normally share my story. I don't like, (laughs) for some reason, sharing it. But uh, I I want this not to be a theory for you. I want this to be real for you. I lived... uh, most of my life in the church, but about 17 years old, I took a 180 degree turn and made a beeline in the opposite direction. Did not want anything to do with God. I stopped believing him. I stopped trusting him. I stopped all of that and would have nothing of him. And that was about 17 years old. By the time I was 20, 21 years old, I was an atheist and, and angry and really vengeful atheist that loved to make fun of this book and some of the things in it. I enjoyed it. And God in his gracious mercy still pursued me in all of that. And when I was about 27 or 8 years old, so about 10 years of this went on during my marriage with Rachel, about 27, 28 years old, I finally got to the point where I was doing certain things to comfort her and to sort of be a good husband, try to be a good husband, that I didn't really jive with what I believed. And so I took this book, not this one, but another one like him. And um, I sat down and I printed out every discrepancy that I thought was in this book, everything that I would needle with other Christians, every issue that I had with it, every contradiction that I saw in it, printed them out and stacked it right next to him. And I put the book book down. I said, okay, here's the deal. I'm not going to live a contradiction anymore. I want you to show up. If you're real, if you're real, God, then it shouldn't take evidence over here. I should be able to know it by reading this. If you've made me and you made this, I should be able to see this. I didn't know that passage in in, uh, Corinthians. Never read that passage before in my life. But I can tell you, starting at Genesis 1-1 and reading through the entire Bible, God showed up more profoundly than he's ever shown up before in my life in any context. This is not theory. There is something like the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we, we engage it by reading words on pages where the reality of God begins to penetrate our hearts. And we're not convinced by evidence out here. We are convinced inside our hearts that not only is this God real, not only is he real, but he loves me. That doesn't happen unless there's something supernatural going on. And that was my story. This is real. This is, not, this is not something that is just theory or fancy words in this book. This really happens to people. The reason you love Jesus right now isn't because the evidence just suddenly swang in one direction. It's because he's commended himself inside the deepest part of your hearts and you love him. You enjoy him. That's number two. Number three, the third thing. So how is this a gift from God? Whatever we do in word and deed, we do in the name of the Lord Jesus. How is that a gift? I mean, we're we're the ones doing it, right? How is that a gift? Well, think about this for a moment. Can anyone do that? Can anyone live for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ in word and deed? Like an unbeliever, can an unbeliever do that? They might be able to fake it for a long period of time, But I think we all know that without loving Christ, without trusting Christ, there's no way someone could really do it or sincerely do it. It is, for those outside the family of God, impossible to do this. It is physically impossible for them to do this. It is impossible to live for the name of Christ without a desire to pursue him and love him, such that we authentically and genuinely would give up anything for Jesus. We would give up anything in our lives for him. And This kind of living that Paul's describing is living in such a way that it shows that every word or deed, in all of those things that we do, Jesus Christ is our highest treasure. He is the highest and greatest treasure. He's the thing we delight in most. And uh, interestingly enough, this is the key to obeying all three of these commands. If you think about it, when we feel the desire to fight, instead of pursue peace, does that show Jesus, who governs all things, especially the immediate situation you find yourself in, does it show that Jesus is our highest treasure? It doesn't. We are deviating from him being our highest treasure. Or do we read the word and speak the word of Christ in such a way that people look at us and say, you know what, there's something different about you. When you talk about this Jesus, I can see that you love him more than anything else. I can see that you love him more than anything else. And our, do our actions show this? Like, do our, does our disposition show this? All of this hinges on our desire for Christ because our life will tell others what you treasure most. It will, my life will tell other people what I value highest. I don't need to communicate that to them in words. They'll see me. They just need to watch me, what I do, what I say, how I live my life. It's impossible not to. And so that's where we fight for these things. We fight for them at the desire level. We constantly put Jesus in our heart, in our mind, in our action, where he deserves to be. And this is impossible for the world to do. This is only something that the family of God can do. And so that is why we give thanks to God the Father through him. We give thanks to God the Father through him. This is where I want to close today, those two words. Through him. Why mention Jesus in this part of the text? Why not just say we give thanks to God the Father, period? Why mention through Jesus? What's the point? Here's the point. Jesus is the only way that anything we've talked about this morning is possible. He is the only way. We mentioned it last week, our adoption into God's family and our being chosen from before the foundation of the world, all of that hinges on Jesus Christ. All of it hinges on the cross. That's what through him means. Jesus Christ in our union with him which Paul has been laboring since the first verse of this book. All of that happened through the cross. And here's the deal. The cross of Jesus Christ is the center of human history, period. If you're ever curious why we end every sermon with the gospel or why we participate in communion every week, it's because Jesus Christ is the center of everything we do. His cross is the center of everything we do at Risen Hope it is impossible for me to overstate or exaggerate how important Jesus Christ is. It is impossible. There is nothing more important than the cross of Christ. Without the cross, every single thing in this world is pointless. And I say that full well knowing all the things in this world that I treasure and love. It is pointless. Think about it. Without the cross, we are all sinners separated by God from God by our love for everything but God. And we are in that state fit for only destruction. We are poisoned by our devotion to the fleeting pleasures of sin. And all of our lives in that moment, in that state are on a collision course with God's just and holy wrath unless something dramatic happens, unless something changes everything. And that's exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ did for each one of us. The cross is the greatest single act of love that has ever happened and that will ever happen. There is nothing like it in the world, nothing. That God looked down upon us in the middle of all of our mess and our sin and our brokenness and he tells us, I love you. I love you and I want you in my family. I want you in my family. I will pay the highest price to get you into my family. I will give my own life for you to be in my family. And that's what God did through Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what the cross means. That's what our adoption cost. And do we feel the weight of that? Do you feel the weight of what happened there? Because there's an entire world out there that doesn't feel that weight, doesn't care at all. That everything we are right now, even just as human beings, is because of God's mercy alone. And, and the, really the main problem with the world is a failure to feel that reality, a failure to feel that Yet for those he has set his love on, those who are in his family, those who who he chose, we look at the cross and we can say, that is love. That's love. He loves me. No one would do that for me unless they love me. And for us, it is the most important event in history because it changed everything for us. And some of us in this room probably need to feel the weight of that today. Just feel the weight of what he, com- what he accomplished on the cross. Because when you do see that, and when you feel the weight of that, that's when the peace of Christ becomes a reality in your life. Something you want to strive for. That's when um, you become insatiably hungry and addicted to the word of Christ. And you're like, I, I honestly don't know what's wrong with me, but I, I have to read this. I need to read this. I want to read this. And that's when everything in your life becomes a theater for God's grace because in word or deed, you do everything for the sake of the name of Christ. Everything we do, everything we do, we do for the Lord Jesus. So one thing I want to tell you, and I just want to communicate it very clearly, so I'm just going to say it in a sentence. God loves you more than you can possibly know. He loves you more than you can possibly understand or know, which is why it will take an eternity for us to experience it. He loves you like that. And these gifts, these three commands are an invitation into a joy that is only experienced in his family. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, they are already yours. They belong to you. So as a body of believers, let us press on to make these our own because they're already ours. They are ours in the family of God. And that's going to be my prayer for today. So let's pray real quick and then we'll worship. Father God, there's a level of practicality to these things that we can see immediately the peace of Christ. We want unity, the Word of Christ. We know that we need to read this book. We want to. And we want to do everything in word or deed. Glorifying and exalting the name of Christ Jesus. We want those things, Father, but it's tough. It's so difficult. There's so many distractions. There's so many things that are fighting for our attention. There's so many competing desires in our own hearts that would keep us from experiencing the fullness of what it means to be in your family, Lord. And what I'm asking right now is for your gracious, supernatural hand as we, as we participate in communion, Father, and as we enjoy worshiping you, Father, that your gracious hand would come in and penetrate the deepest parts of our soul and our being, and that you would grant to us all of these things, Father, peace, the peace that is only found in Christ Jesus, a unity that is so unorthodox and unexplainable inexplainable for the world, Father, and that we would be addicted to this book, Father, that this would be our life, that we would wake up every morning or go to bed every night or spend every lunch, whatever it looks like, Father, pressing into your word, not as an obligation, not as a checklist thing, but because we just want a a, a glimpse of your face. We want one look at our Father. We want to see you one one last time before we go and do the other things that we've got to do. And Father, that we would in our hearts, the deepest part of our hearts, that we would feel compelled to let the glory of Christ Jesus dictate every word, every thought, every action, every disposition, Father that you would do that in our hearts. We give you all the glory, Father. I'm asking right now for you to do this, for you to, and I'm pleading with you for you to to come by your Holy Spirit and grant us these things. I know that you can, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.